Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The House of Commons without whips is like a city without sewers, said the late Tory MP Enoch Powell. We don't see it. We don't necessarily want to see it. But whipping is the dark and dirty system running beneath everything in Westminster. The system quietly keeping British democracy ticking along. The term whipping comes from hunting. The whipper in keeps the hounds in line, hunting as a pack. The whips in Westminster are teams of MPs in every party tasked with making sure their colleagues vote in the right way. Which doesn't sound that exciting, at least on the face of it. But whipping is, as one of my guests on this week's episode puts it, the last area of secrecy in British politics. It's the stuff of mystery, speculation, even legend. The darkest, most mythologised area of British politics. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. The whips know everything about their MPs, or they're meant to about their political beliefs, their voting record, their family, not to mention the most intimate details about their sex life, their financial problems, who they were spotted with in a restaurant in Pimlico last Thursday. Chief Whips have long been rumoured to keep a notorious black book, or burn book, like Mean Girls, of those most intimate secrets. They offer support to MPs, but it comes with a catch. As one special advisor put it to me, they pull you in for a hug and then pull you in a little bit tighter so you're under no doubt as to what you need to do. It's a system built for the politics of decades long past. A system to suit an old shadowy palace full of raucous bars and quiet corridors and posh men behaving badly. The big question is, has anything really changed? Sir Gavin Williamson, twice sacked from government, has in recent days been forced to deny multiple allegations he's a foul-mouthed bully. When Gavin Williamson, a former chief whip, was reappointed to Rishi Sunak's cabinet a few weeks ago, a slew of allegations emerged about his use of the dark arts as chief whip until he was forced to resign. Is this kind of behaviour normal? Let's be honest, Parliament has got a massive job to do to change our culture. So, for this week's episode, I decided to go down into the metaphorical sewers, to delve into the way whipping was done in the past, the way it's been mythologised in our popular culture, and what it's actually like to do the job today. I should probably warn you now that, unsurprisingly, There's a fair bit of colourful language in this episode, in case that's not your thing. Personally, I'd say it's well worth it. I was a chief whip under Liz's administration. I never grabbed anybody's balls whilst I was the chief whip. Don't go into politics to expect cuddles. Expect the rough and the tough and the really sharp edge. Mad scenes of whips going down lines of ambulances and opening the doors and checking quite how alive some of the people are. I would do it all over again if I was ever asked. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're entering the murky world of the whips office and trying to separate the myth from the reality.
One morning this week, I walked into Parliament as I always do, but something felt different. The fog was heavy in the air, and I was seeing the place I work every day with new eyes, with more of a sense of the murky history of the place. I waited by the pier's entrance. Big Ben struck 11am, and I was ushered into the Lords by a man who, more than anyone, knows and understands and has captured the mystery, the passion and the dark side of British politics. The creator of the most famous chief whip of them all. I'm the chief whip, merely a functionary. I keep the troops in line. I put a bit of stick about it. I make them jump. Francis Urquhart, the fictional, villainous chief whip in House of Cards, a series of novels in the late 1980s and early 1990s, then a famous BBC drama, later adapted for a blockbuster American version. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably, like me, seen and loved every episode. We're sitting here in this amazing office with a portrait of Margaret Thatcher in the background. You were saying this actually used to be her office. In, indeed, in, in her last years in the House of Lords. It has a few echoes, this room. This is Michael Dobbs, the Conservative Party peer, Margaret Thatcher's former chief of staff and the author of House of Cards. I had fallen out very, very badly with Margaret Thatcher in her last year or so. Hugely painful to me because I worked for her from the time she became leader of the party in opposition. And yeah, you know, it was a, it was, it was a difficult time for me. So uh, after that last election that she fought, the 87 election, I, I was away on a holiday and I was very bruised emotionally and everything else. I was uh, on the little island of Gozo off Malta with a pad and a pencil and a bottle of wine, uh, wondering if I could write a book. And I was just going through everything that had happened to me, the turmoil and the huge colour of politics in my life in the, you know, the last couple of years. And uh, I ended up, I'd finished the bottle of wine, and all I had on my pad were two initials, two letters, F-U. Now, um, clearly I needed therapy, and this was a form of therapy, but thinking about it all and coming to that point, it had stirred something inside me, a, a kind of a light switch had gone on. I came back the next day with another bottle of wine, and F.U. became Francis Urquhart, based on those uh, initials, and F.U. became his character. Michael Dobbs was no longer in politics, but his creation, Francis Urquhart, stayed on in a fictional world after the resignation of Margaret Thatcher, plotting to bring down the new Prime Minister from the inside. He's camp, evil, Machiavellian, with a famous catchphrase. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. And, so crucially for the drama, he uses the dark arts of the chief whip for his scheming. Well, yes, a couple of leaks are all very well. But it takes more than that. A big scandal, perhaps. A political scandal. Or a scandal about something people rarely understand. Sex. Or money. Why did I choose the chief whip? Because the chief whip knows everything, knows everyone, is in charge of, of so much, yet operates behind the scenes. And for dramatic purposes, this is a wonderful sort of character. Do you feel like you kind of created the mythology of the chief whip? in a way, or that you just captured it? A, a, a bit of each, I think. Uh, the mythology of the chief whip. I don't think it is mythology. In those days, chief whips were in incredibly formidable people, and the, the politics was fought very hard. If you remember, at the time, around about the time that I wrote it, or just before that, uh, Jim Callaghan's government had been on the cliff edge for month after month after month, winning votes of confidence by one or two or three. And eventually, in a hugely historic evening, his government was defeated, thrown out by a vote in Parliament uh, with a majority of one. So you can imagine, with votes, the future of the government and the country, literally on a knife edge, night after night, you can imagine how powerful and important the whips were in those days. 
What were the whips like in those decades when you were observing it really closely? All the inspiration for all the blackmail, the intrigue, everything that Francis Arcot gets up to. What was the real-life experience of, of the whips in, at that time? They had a hugely important job. I mean, if they, if they didn't deliver, the government fell. I mean, it was as important as that. But there, there was also, it's a different generation. There were many people in politics, in Parliament, who, for instance, had served in the armed forces, many people who had served in the war. They knew when an order was given that if they were going to not follow that order, uh, then there were going to be consequences, real consequences. But there was also another very important part of that. The whips in those days were not only in charge of government discipline, but they were also in charge of welfare. And in those days, I knew a good number of MPs who'd got into real difficulty for whatever reason. Their marriages had failed, their finances had failed, uh, their, their livers had failed, they were drinking too much. And the, the whips used to help them out. I mean, they used to take care of them. They were, I, I used to describe them as a bit of a social service in the Palace of Westminster. I don't think that happens nowadays. I mean, they... they they saved people, they helped people, but the whips would expect something in return, uh, loyalty. And it worked, I think, as a system. It worked much more effectively in those days. A lot of Francis Urquhart's moves, like, spoiler alert, pushing people off the roof of Parliament, aren't commonly practised chief whip tactics. But there are plenty of moments depicting his normal job as a formidable chief whip that aren't so different to the descriptions we hear of how whips really used to operate. Can we do anything for him, Stampo? I've talked to the sergeant and he's understandably reluctant to believe our friend here stopped his car to ask the way to his own bloody constituency. Dear God. He won't be proceeding. Really? <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Stoke, you've been lucky. Heard something else funny about you the other day. Heard you were thinking of abstaining on the second reading of the Environment Bill. What? Don't. No. No, of course not. You're speaking quite warmly about it, I suppose, that, that kind of support that the whips would offer. But I suppose the thing that you actually explore in House of Cards is blackmail a lot of the time. Um, most of the things that I wrote about, uh, I had seen, or reflections of things that I'd seen. Not altogether in the same time with the same people in one week. But yes, these things do happen in politics. Politics is about passion. It's about deeply held principle. It's about total commitment. And you've got to expect uh, it to be a rough and tough game. And it is a rough and tough game. So if anybody out there uh, wants to come into politics and think that, well, this will be a nice and cosy environment to be in, they're in the wrong job. I mean, the future of the country depends upon this. The fate of uh, you know, the livelihoods of millions of people depend upon the outcome. So, yeah, people fight it very hard, very tough, very rough. It is a battle worth fighting. And it is a battle. It's a constant battle, not only with the opposition, but with your own side and with your conscience. How far does anybody think they should go uh, in doing in, in trying to get what they think is right. I still have thoughts about, shall I do a sequel? Uh, I've got to wake up one morning and say, actually, this is the thing that I really, really want to do because it'd be a huge amount of work. Uh, but I have the idea, I have the characters. There'd be different characters, very different characters than the ones I wrote about 30 years ago. They would actually be younger and they might be much more like people like you than they uh -huh. would... Uh, you know, the, the, the rather conservative Matty Storin, although having said that, she wasn't that conservative with Frances Urquhart. No, was she, she wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we can look out for a young Belfast journalist in a, in a ripping sequel to yeah, the mean, House of Cards series. You want, you want to be a character in a cheap novel? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Whips famously don't give interviews or talk about their work, even though we've persuaded a couple to talk to us for this episode. Giles Brandreth, a Tory whip in the 90s, was excommunicated by his former colleagues for publishing his diaries, appropriately titled Breaking the Code. Margaret Thatcher's chief whip, Tim Renton, was also shunned for writing a book about his tenure. But apart from that, there isn't much material about the true workings of the whips. 
But there is a rare, extraordinary BBC documentary called Life in the Whip's Office by Michael Cockrell that captures the culture and the methods of the whips at that time. My wife is giving birth to a child one morning. You you have that's an arrangement, is it? I've spoken to the chief whip and he said, don't let it be born today. Yep, that's a whip telling an MP not to let his child be born on that day. It's from 1995, although honestly, it's so pale, stale and old-fashioned, you would think it was from 1905. There were a few women whips in, in the Conservative Party, but I suppose not in this parliament. I mean, it's rather ironic, isn't it, that the Conservatives have had a woman leader, but they've still never had a woman in the whip's office. Well, you've got to get your priorities right, haven't you? <laughs> a man's approach is sometimes very difficult and, and different in psychological terms from the approach a woman might make to the same problem. I just wonder, what are these more masculine activities of the whip's office? Well, uh, sort of the general badinage. Ah, yeah, the general badinage. But as well as encapsulating the old-school sexism of the whip's office and politics in general as recently as the 90s, This highly revealing documentary also goes even deeper into what Lord Dobbs was just describing there. This was the era of the Black Book, when whips were rumoured to have compiled information about MPs to use against them. It didn't seem fair to push Lord Dobbs, who was never a whip himself, too much on the ethics of the dark arts practised in those days by whips. But there's a quote in that documentary from Tim Fortescue, a conservative whip in the 1970s, about the sorts of things whips would help MPs with. Listen carefully. Anyone with any sense who was in trouble would come to the whips and, and tell them the truth and say, no, this, I'm in a jam, can you help? It might be debt, it might be a scandal involving small boys or any kind of scandal which a member seemed likely to be mixed up in They'd come and ask if we could help. And if we could, we did. And we would do everything we can because we would store up brownie points. That quote went unremarked upon when it aired in the 90s. But in 2014, it resurfaced to an outcry that whips had possibly covered up for paedophile MPs. Theresa May, as Home Secretary, referred those comments to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. It found that there were examples in the past of deeply flawed central government policies and practices which put political priorities before the welfare of children. That is the darkest side of whipping. We've inherited a system that historically incentivised protecting MPs over people they may have wronged. And the question is, decades on, whether the whipping system has been able to completely shake that off. Whips help MPs, these people in unique, pressurised, isolated and public-facing roles, with all sorts of problems, in a way they would say is totally above board. But the potential problem is obvious. So that's the system we've inherited. But fast forward a decade or two to the new Labour years. What was whipping like then? I'm not interested in a sort of macho approach to whipping. And, you know, I didn't feel the need to have any wild animals in my office in order to get people to vote with their party. This is Jackie Smith, the former Home Secretary, Strictly Come Dancing contestant, rival podcaster. And from 2006 to June 2007... Chief Whip for Tony Blair. Politics is a collective activity and that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because it's organised and planned and people are marshalled or persuaded to be part of that collective activity. She is a firm defender of the whipping system. And sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, well, you know, the whips, they have a terrible stifling effect on political debate. and Wouldn't it be a good idea if there weren't any whips, etc.? No, it would be a terrible idea if there weren't any whips, because then, frankly, busy MPs would not always be clear about what was happening, 
what their party had decided was their collective position and therefore what they should be voting for, when they needed to vote, disciplined, organised parliamentary political groups delivering the programme on which the public elected them supports democracy, it doesn't undermine it. And yet she managed to do the job without recourse to the dark arts. Jack Straw famously talks about being a young MP when a a whip grabbed him by the balls and shoved him against a wall in order to make sure he voted in the right way in the division lobby. Uh, I never grabbed anybody's balls whilst I was the chief whip, either in reality or metaphorically. It didn't strike me that working with a group of sophisticated adults with enormous political um, understanding and history Uh, that your best approach was going to be to threaten people. You know, on the whole, I tried to work by uh, understanding both the political and personal needs of the people that I was responsible for, treating them like adults, enabling them to engage in discussions with ministers where they had some scepticism about policy developments and, you know, doing it in doing it in that way. Before I was in Parliament, I was a teacher. And people sometimes used to say to me, oh, being chief whip, it's just like, uh, you know, a bunch of naughty school children. And I would resist that analogy because uh, infantilising politicians and your political group is a way to promote bad behaviour. It's not a way to get people to think about the implications of what it is that they're doing and saying, which was what I was wanting to develop as, as chief whip. Jackie Smith had quite an unusual challenge as chief whip. I sometimes joke about my time as chief whip that I never lost a vote, but I did lose a prime minister because we were coming to the end of Tony Blair's time as prime minister. We had still a pretty considerable majority, but we had quite soon after I took over as chief whip essentially the manoeuvring of Tony Blair to announce his resignation. So there was as much work as Chief Whip in handling and trying to minimise the dysfunctionality that was coming from that transitional period. I mean, we had some difficult votes we had to negotiate. We had a Trident vote, for example. We had other things where we did have to do the traditional whipping job of making sure that people understood the issues, understanding who had concerns, putting them in front of ministers, doing the numbers to make sure that, you know, you had the votes when you thought you were going to need them and and you knew how many people were with you and who you therefore had to work on. All of that is sort of bread and butter of whipping, but also, of course, is the reading of the political temperature of the parliamentary party. She puts it quite calmly now, but Jackie Smith's job was managing a Labour Party at war, at risk of tearing itself apart. At six o'clock, Labour in turmoil. A minister and six junior members of the government resigned over the leadership crisis. I did have an infamous conversation with Tom Watson whilst I was standing on the platform at Euston Station in which I had to say to him, Tom, you can't stay as a minister in the government having effectively organised, coordinated a letter asking the Prime Minister to stand down and, um, and he did resign. So, and then I had to talk to parliamentary private secretaries who'd also signed the letter and were part of, uh, I mean, I don't like to think of it as a plot, but essentially I suppose it was a plot, who were part of that organisation to get rid of the Prime Minister. I wanted to do that in a way that wasn't going to crash the whole party uh, before Gordon took it over. And I, you know, it wasn't solely or even largely due to me, but I do think that that very, very difficult period of time was negotiated um, in a in a smoother way than it might than might have been the case given all of the sort of tension. So how did the role actually work in practice? If it's not threats and blackmail, how do you really go about keeping MPs in line? Anything to do with being a chief whip involves 
a hell of a lot of talking to people. If you're a normal minister, you take home, you know, several boxes, red boxes of work every weekend. What I noted when I became chief whip is that, yes, I had a box sent to me at the weekend, but it was only half full uh, with, you know, the sort of business of the week and things like that. Yet what I did do was spend a hell of a lot of time on the telephone. So a lot of this is about conversations. It's about, you know, the reason why the chief whip has an office just off the members lobby is because there's a hell of a lot of time that you're in there with people variously coming in to talk to you for meetings with or without coffee, depending on, you know, if they're in the good books or not. I had to work quite hard, I think, to keep the team working together on all of that business that whips have to do, because essentially they're responsible for making sure people know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be voting for and which days they're supposed to be there and what the whip is and all of that quite basic stuff that you can do either in a sort of aggressive, let's put a stick about sort of a way, or you can do in a way that tries to build on the best intentions of of your colleagues. And I hope I always tried to do the latter. And that was the way that I tried to deal with the um, with the tensions that existed at that period of transition as well. And yet... Of course, there were times when, you know, essentially I had to summon people to my office. Uh, Diane Abbott came and we had a row about um, something that she'd written about me, in fact, in the, in the papers, which she tried to claim wasn't what it had said it was. And that... That led me, I'm afraid, to use a swear word to her that I think Jess Phillips subsequently claimed she was the first person to tell Diane Abbott to fuck off, but actually I think I probably was. That's the world of the whips, according to the House of Cards creator and Tony Blair's former chief whip. But what about the most legendary whipping operation of all? A very special moment in history a period so brutal that several MPs are rumoured to have died because they were brought into the Commons to vote while seriously ill. And what has the job been like recently? As, say, Liz Truss's chief whip. We speak to her, Wendy Morton, in part two. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. If you're an MP in Westminster, the whips are always there in the shadows, the all-seeing, all-knowing presence in the corridors of power, quietly making sure that the business of the day passes as planned. Often, and again, just like the sewage system, it's a sign everything's working properly if you're able to forget whipping even exists. But sometimes the wheels of Parliament don't turn so easily. And that messy business becomes too important to ignore. There are moments in history when whipping has become the whole story of British politics. When majorities are small, when issues are contentious, and the whips are fighting for every single vote. We all remember the Brexit wars of three or four years ago, 
when the government struggled with the hung parliament, which refused to vote its Brexit plans through. And equally notorious were the Maastricht debates of the early 1990s, when a rebellious group of Tory MPs fought tooth and nail to block John Major's plans for closer European integrations. And when the Tory whips used every trick in the book to get their way. As Ian Duncan Smith told Jack in his episode on the Maastricht rebels earlier this year. As I went there, I suddenly got caught in the bit between the two lobbies, the no vote entrance and the yes vote exit. And I was surrounded by very senior cabinet ministers who were there. And they sort of literally surrounded me and they were saying, you don't have to do this, you've got a great future, da 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 you've made your point, you've won the arguments, we all accept this. These were all cabinet ministers telling me that we had won the argument. But, you know, we just need to have this vote, we can't do this. Part of me wanted to go along with the government and say, OK. The other bit then, finally, I said, no, I can't do that because I'll let down the people that I've worked with on this for some time. And I then said, I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to have to go. And as I did, they kind of parted and I walked in. The worst moment was at the far end, there were a whole load of Labour MPs standing. And as they saw me walk into the lobby, they cheered. And my heart went into my boots. <laughs> That's the worst thing that could have happened. And there was real anger. I have to tell you, nothing like now. Then there was real anger. They were like a phalanx on the other side when I came out. Conservatives, very angry, shouting and you know all sorts of abuse going on. Today, nobody faces anything like that, but it was a very much more physical affair in those days. So, yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't easy. But the most legendary whipping operation in history, the time MPs still talk about and the time that you just heard Michael Dobbs refer to as his inspiration, was a period of five years when every single vote was on a knife edge. The Labour government from 1974 to 1979 had a wafer-thin majority, relying on turning out every single Labour MP and deals with the so-called odds and sods, random other opposition and independent MPs. It was so dramatic that there's a rather successful play about it. This house was a play I wrote, God, um, ten years ago now at the National Theatre. I was trying to make sense of the recent... Uh, arrival of a hung parliament for the first time since then in the form of the coalition in 2010. This is the playwright and screenwriter beloved of politics fans, James Graham. You've probably seen his TV dramas and plays about Rupert Murdoch and Dominic Cummings and the guy who may or may not have cheated at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But you also probably know the play that made his name 10 years ago, This House, about the 1970s hung parliament and the difficulties and drama in the whip's office. Cruel as it may seem, this rotten system is one of the few things this country has manufactured and exported that hasn't been sent back. I'd always been obsessed by the whips, mainly because it's one of the last areas of political life, I think, that contains any mystery. I came actually to the story, though, particularly of the 1974-79 Parliament, because I, I was writing a different play about Margaret Thatcher, and I... I hadn't realised they discovered that the vote of no confidence in March 1979 that brought down the Callaghan government and, and created the election that would elevate Thatcher to power and change the country and the world. I hadn't realised that vote had been won by one single vote, or rather one single missing vote. So the government fell, I think it was 311 to 310. And that just set my writer brain going, like, who was that one single vote, that one single person that changed history and different people can be attributed to it but essentially it was an old whip himself doc broughton who was a, a member of parliament in leeds who was too ill to come down for this key vote and this the story of how the whips themselves people like uh, ann taylor and, and um, walter harrison and michael cox panicked about what whether or not it should bring him down and would he die on the m1 on the way and what would that say about our democracy and our systems so it was that that was the way in really like what kind of parliament um would arrive at a point that is so vulnerable that one person's absence can change the world. And what kind of job is, is the whips when they're dealing with, in some cases like that, uh, life or death? The drama spins on the Labour whips under Wilson and Callaghan clinging onto power vote by vote. But the thing that made this parliament so dramatic was that pairing, the informal system that normally allows MPs to be absent from a vote, collapsed. And most of the story of this house was centred around 
firstly, the chaos of what happened when that agreement was cancelled, when tensions between the Conservative whips and the Labour whips broke down, so peering was cancelled, and that led to the scenes of the 1970s where ambulances were pulling into New Palace Yard with semi-dying and sick members of Parliament because their bodies, your body, has to be in the palace grounds for your vote to count. The doctor really did think I should stay another night, you know, Michael. I mean, removing an appendix, it's not like taking your shoes off. And mad scenes of whips going down lines of ambulances and opening the doors and checking quite how alive some of the people are, like checking their pulse and seeing if their vote's going to count. Hello, is he even alive? I know from, from reading other interviews with you, some whips kind of let you into their world a little bit. I mean, it was vaguely terrifying deciding you're going to write a play about... A, a group of people who famously do not give interviews, do not make speeches and do not publish memoirs. And I just kept thinking, how the hell am I going to do this? It took a long time for, to get any of them to trust me. But I think because my story was set in the 1970s and it was 30 years later, I think it was enough time for people to be willing to, um, to speak to me. And eventually, just by continually turning up to Parliament, by writing to members of Parliament, um, I, I accidentally bumped into Anne Taylor who famously was the very first female chief whip in the 90s under Tony Blair. She was a junior whip in the 1970s. And I passed her and I went, hi, oh, hi, Baroness Taylor, it's James Graeber. I've been writing to you loads. Sorry, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. But, uh, and, and she was very kind and um, began talking to me. And that, that was it, really. Once one domino fell, they all started to fall. Up until the most incredible meeting I ever had for this play, which was finally with Walter Harrison in his house up in Wakefield. And Walter was the deputy chief whip, known universally across the board as the greatest whip Parliament has ever known. Famously, uh, uh, the only man Tony Blair ever said he was scared of. There's, there's a bit where he reveals that one of the ways he gets intel is from the drivers for ministers. I was wondering, are you able to reveal whether that's a whether if that's your fabrication or if that's actually a, a, one of his tactics. No, that was absolutely one of his tactics. Yeah, he revealed that to me. And a few, you know, he had, whether it's bartenders, drivers, cleaners, he had spies around the palace who would tell him uh, what ministers were saying secretly. Yeah, it's fascinating. The beauty of the play is that it explores the farce, the totally contrived drama of the voting system in British politics. Unless you put one foot in front of the other and... Pass through the lobby, you don't count. It's archaic, it's old-fashioned, it's bollocks. But somehow, it works. But this house also captures the dignity, the seriousness, the history-changing significance of these moments. And it explores the human side of whipping too. It's a strange job in the sense that they're privy to a lot of the secrets and the personal information of members of parliament. And then I guess they can use that for good or for, for bad. They can use that to understand that someone is going through some a difficult time in their life, they're struggling with something. And cynically or otherwise, to make sure that they keep turning up to vote, you go and check in on them. And, and I guess there is a pastoral quality to that. And with the bits we try to show in this house, we're not just the, the glorious image that, that Michael Dobbs shows in House of Cards of, of manipulation and, and villainy, but actually tenderness, kindness, uh, checking in on people who are just human beings like, like you and me. Everything all right in that regard? Mrs. Family. Are you asking me as a friend or as a whip, Walter? The whips I spoke to from the 1970s, particularly in the Labour office, something happens when you bring up that period for them. The, the eyes start to moisten a bit. They, they, they remember it being a very difficult time, an upsetting time because they ultimately lost. They did incredibly well. Um, no one gave them weeks, and they managed to almost get to the four or five years, but fell at the final hurdle. I think the things they saw and the things they went through together as a team really united them. And it was a very strange thing, actually, when the play came out. A few days later, Walter Harrison died, and he never got to see the play but the key thing I remembered is all the whips I'd spoken to during that time went up to be pallbearers in his funeral and carry his coffin. And you just think something, there must be something about the confidences and the drama, but also the camaraderie that gets forged in the fires of such a period. It really, it really matters to these people. And again, that was just very helpful to me to try and infuse this slightly dark world with that level of humanity.
Tensions run high in the voting lobbies on those long nights in Parliament when everything is riding on getting a certain number of bodies through the right door. And we had one of those big nights only a few weeks ago, in the dying days of Liz Truss's short, brutal premiership. There were chaotic scenes in the lobbies as MPs went in to vote and allegations of bullying by senior Tories. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. Is the Chief Whip Mendy Morton still in post? Um, I'm not entirely clear on what the situation is with the Chief Whip. Liz Truss's premiership was dogged by Conservative Party division, the threats of rebellions, open dissent, U-turns, and then, that night, chaotic scenes in the lobbies as the government tried to avert a defeat on a vote on fracking. Confusion reigned as to whether the chief whip, Wendy Morton, had or hadn't resigned right there to Liz Truss's face in the packed crowds of the division lobbies. The following morning, the confidence of her party in tatters, Liz Truss resigned. A few weeks on from that chaos... I met a smiling Wendy Morton in her office to chat through that crazy time and her unique experience of being Chief Whip. It was quite, uh, at times, turbulent, fascinating, interesting. I could use a million and one different adjectives to describe it. Would I do it all over again? Yes, I would. Um, I'd been a whip before, so I had an idea of what the job entailed. Um, I'd been a whip an assistant whip during the Brexit year, so very, very different to where they are now. And it was, you know, a huge privilege and an honour to be asked to be chief whip, um, recognising as well that whilst Liz was our third female prime minister, I was actually our first female chief whip. Um, hard to believe that, in a way, we've taken so long to have uh, a female, our first female chief whip. So, yeah, it was a tre- tremendous honour and, 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 and privilege, and I would do it all over again if I was ever asked. But I do recall people saying to me, yeah, Wendy, I don't envy you the job. You've taken it on at a really difficult time. But, look, that's that's the role, that's politics. And, you know, I took that role on knowing that, yes, it would be a challenge, but um, life life can be a challenge. Um, and, and so... Yeah, I knew it would be be challenging from day one. As the first female Conservative chief whip, Wendy Morton wanted to do things differently. My style is not to instil fear into people. That is not my way of doing it. She says she cared about relationship building, respect, the discipline and the important pastoral side. I always take an approach that, you know, my door's open if people want to come and talk to me. So I spoke to a you know a lot of a lot of colleagues and 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 to me it is about building relationships at the end of the day you know some people say is it more stick is it more carrot i'm not i wouldn't say talk stick and carrot because that's completely wrong but it is about building managing relationships um, and understanding people some conservative mps frankly don't speak highly of wendy morton's tenure as chief whip and it's hard to tell how fair those criticisms are whether she was dealt an impossible hand by Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, or whether some of that chaos was on her. Certainly, she bristled at one point when I seemed to suggest that she had struggled to get votes through. People weren't voting the way you needed them to vote. They weren't going to vote with the government. Well, I didn't lose a vote. Yeah. So, um, 45 days of being a chief whip, but we, did, we the Conservative Party in government, did not lose a single vote. I'm conscious, obviously, there's a lot of focus on the evening of the fracking vote, which was difficult. That was a confidence vote for 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 for, for colleagues. Um, but um, you know, we 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 delivered in terms of the energy prices. We delivered in terms of national insurance contributions. There were some really important, important policy decisions that, under Liz's uh, leadership, under Liz's term as prime minister, we we took through this place. There was some briefing against you. Uh, at one point during that, some colleagues were talking about you allegedly crying years ago when you were a junior whip or, you know, that kind of thing. How did that make you feel? And what do you make of, of that? Um, I, I, know the, I, know the, I know the incident that you, you were referring to. 
and uh, I've got my suspicions as to why that got out in the public domain. The context of that was something very, very specific. I stood up and said I didn't think this as a particular approach was the right thing, but uh, but that's that's history. But again, in this place, you you have to get used to some of the um, the briefing that goes on. I'm not saying it's right because it's not and some of it is pretty nasty. My question is, would you put up with it? Would it go on in any other professional background or company? You know, not only the companies that I've worked in, but it it does seem as though it goes on here. But again, you have to... Some people will say you have to have thick skin to be a politician. I think there's an element of truth in that. But equally, the best advice that I ever had was just be yourself. You have to be true to yourself because if you're not, you will only get found out and are you not the worst person for doing it? What did you make of the of the other criticism that you were too nice? Well, I've not heard that one, but equally, um, everyone has their own style. You can be nice and you can still be you can still deliver. Fundamentally, it's to people respect the role that you have, the person that you are. And to me it's about fairness. So people will judge me as they will judge me. And whether they call me nice, whether they call me something else or something else, I can only be myself. Around the sort of the slashing the 45p rate, it was Graham Brady who went to this trust, I'm told, or I, I gather from reading reports, he was the person who said this isn't going to pass. Um, is that right? Or were you also there flagging to the Prime Minister that probably that vote wouldn't wouldn't make it and they were gonna to have to U-turn. I wouldn't I wouldn't know of any conversations between Sir Graham and and, and, and Liz. Obviously the Chief Whip, um, one of my roles is to understand the mood of Parliament. And that's the same for any Chief Whip, understanding the mood of Parliament. Um, and if if a piece of um, legislation, whatever it is, is looking difficult then conversations may be had, conversations may be had in Cabinet, but it would be wrong of me to go into any of any of, any of of that detail. But conversations between Sir Graham and Liz would be between those two. But I suppose the criticism was that it took someone else going to Liz Trust to say, this isn't going to pass, you need to U-turn. Is that, is that the case? I'm not, I don't know where, I don't know who's, who's, who, where that's coming from. It was, it was all part of the same kind of, package of briefings in Politico but that was oh right I've not I've not read that on Politico so I don't know but is that is that a fair criticism as chief whip you don't comment to the press as chief whip you have a relationship with the prime minister where you um are able to say you know this might be an issue this is okay Um, and that's the role of the of the of the chief whip yeah. Um, but in terms of the actual detail, I think it would be wrong to me. I didn't. I don't even know what. I don't recognise that story. I don't know where it was coming from. Yeah. Okay. The controversy over Gavin Williamson a few weeks ago was, of course, precipitated by Wendy Morton herself. She complained about messages leaked to the Sunday Times that he had sent her while she was chief whip, and then more allegations about his conduct came out until he resigned from Rishi Sunak's cabinet and an inquiry into his conduct was launched. It's a war of the chief whips. I'm not going to talk about any other colleague, and particularly not that one, given that there's an ongoing investigation that would be absolutely wrong of me. All I will say is that I have my style of doing things, they have their style of doing things. And what about, you know, there are all these ideas, you know, having a black book, you know, black books don't exist. <laughs> I know people like to think maybe they did once upon a time. I don't know, but uh, in all the time that I've been uh, involved in whipping in here, I've never ever had a black book. I've got a memory on a good day, but uh, <laughs> or an institutional female memory, but no black book. <laughs> So Wendy Morton was the first female Conservative chief whip who would probably have liked to stay longer and left her mark. People will make their own judgments up on, in terms of, of characters. You know, are you strong? Are you weak? Are you nice? Are you scary? Probably based on their interactions or, or, or perceptions. But I just come back to my point, which is in, I think you just have to be true to yourself. And that's what I hope 
that I was when I did that role in the way that I handled, handled colleagues and got, got on with the job, you know, we didn't lose a vote. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I can sit and analyse every day, but life's too short to do that. And you know, hindsight's a great thing, but none of us have got it. If anything, I hope that if there was a glass ceiling, perhaps me becoming the first female chief whip for the Conservative Party, if I haven't broken that ceiling, I've put a big crack in it. There's no doubt whipping has changed since the dark days of decades past. They let women be whips these days, and evidence of serious crime tends to be reported to the police. But what about the murkier bits in between? The dark arts, the hints of borderline blackmail? How often does that respectful relationship, the persuasion and support that Wendy Morton and Jackie Smith talked about, tip into something darker? I've come to suspect that some of this is the Emperor's new clothes. The whips rely on their myth-making, the secrecy that shrouds them, to get things done, when most of the time it's just a cup of tea and conversation about the pros and cons of a particular parliamentary amendment. But recent history would suggest that the dark arts of whipping are not entirely consigned to the past. And there are plenty of people still in politics who think it remains, and frankly, should be, a dark and dirty business. I leave you with the author Michael Dobbs, the man who has blurred the lines between the imagined murky world of whipping and the reality forevermore. Just remember that politics is said to be the world's second oldest profession and takes most of its rules from the first. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's episode on Maastricht and my episode on the Queen and her secret daily interactions with the Whip's office. Thank you to my guests this week, and you can still watch James Graham's play This House online at the National Theatre at home. My producer was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.